Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series on biblical worldview with James Jordan, and here he's going to be discussing liturgy and education. We do want to make you aware that we are releasing our Psalm Chants over on Apple Music and Spotify and other music streaming platforms. Currently on those platforms, we have 1, 2, and 3, and 6 is coming out soon. So if you want to learn to memorize and sing the Psalms and be able to murmur on them day and night, we encourage you to check out our YouTube channel where we have some Psalm videos there, and be on the lookout as we seek to release all the Psalms on Apple Music and Spotify. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here's James Jordan discussing biblical worldview, liturgy, and education. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we draw into your presence to study your word and to consider what you would have us to do, we ask that your Holy Spirit would bless our endeavors, that your Spirit would guide me as I teach and all as they hear. We ask that this day we would worship you in spirit and in truth, for we pray this in the name of Christ our King. Amen. We have been studying, in terms of a basic Christian worldview, the powers of the church, and we have moved to the final thing that we'll consider along these lines, which is the power of church officers to appoint liturgy in the church. Somebody, after all, has to decide what the order of service is going to be. In addition to appointing times for meeting, as we saw last week, somebody has to appoint what will be done, and that is one of the powers of church officers. And it's appropriate for us to consider liturgy and worship for a few weeks here, especially since we've made a few changes in the liturgy and have introduced a new set of prayers. It's a good time to review things, or we have a lot of new people in the church who may not understand exactly what we're doing. I'd like this morning to give kind of an introductory lecture on this and ask ourselves a more general question, though, as a lead-in to the study of liturgy, and that is, If we are going to try to reform our society and our civilization, how do we go about doing it? How do we change the church and how do we change the state? How do we change the family in order to make all these things Christian? Now, I think a very common view and one which I have said over and over again over the last many years, a decade or so since I've been a Christian Reconstructionist, is that we just can't take over society and impose a Christian state upon the United States of America. Rather, what we have to do is educate people. We generate sermons, cassette tapes, literature, newsletters, lots of newsletters, books, etc., and we gradually change people's minds. And when we get a lot of people's minds changed, then uh, we'll take over and we'll have a Christian state and we'll have Christian universities and we'll have Christian churches. Education is primary. This is a very common view that education is primary to everything else. It is an erroneous view, but it's one that we need to take into consideration this morning. I'm going to read at length from a recently published book by a man who is very much involved in attempting to reconstruct society from a Christian point of view, and he gives expression to this common but I believe erroneous viewpoint. He says in this book talking about how God wants to reform society and especially the state. He says, The function that God requires as the necessary concomitant or accompaniment to a godly law order is teaching. 
At the time that the law was given in Exodus, the Levites were also assigned instructional responsibilities, and it was they who bore the Ark of the Covenant. Moses made clear that this teaching function of the Levites, here uh, he made clear the teaching function of the Levites from Deuteronomy 33.10, they shall teach Jacob thy judgments in Israel thy law. The scattering of Levites throughout Israel away from the sanctuary makes clear the importance of their teaching function over sanctuary duties. In other words, teaching is more important than worship. Temple duty had dignity and prestige, but teaching was the normal activity of the Levites. Notice how these things are put in opposition one to another. Although, like all other groups, the Levites were at times apostate, their teaching function gave them an advantage. Thus, in the days of Hezekiah, we're told that the Levites were more upright in heart to sanctify themselves than the priests, Second Chronicles 29.34. Then he goes on to say, Moreover, in Old Testament times, both the excellent Hebrew schools and the synagogues were developments of the Levitical function, as was the church in the New Testament. Notice how the church, he says, grows out of the school. The Eastern Rite churches and Rome continue the priestly and temple approach to worship, hence the closeness of the Eucharist to the old sacrificial system. Whereas some of them, some or most aspects of Protestantism normally have been in continuity with the teaching ministry of the synagogue. So you have to pick one of the two. The Protestant emphasis must thus in essence be educational, and instruction must be the prelude to true worship. The essence of Protestantism is instruction and education, and instruction is the prelude to true worship. Got to have teaching before you can worship. I don't know why we have infant baptism, if that's the case, by the way. Maybe that's why we don't have infant communion in these churches. For the Levitical heritage, true worship must be grounded not only in faith, but in the true knowledge of the Word of God. Hence, instruction in the Word is fundamental to worship. All right? Knowledge is basic to worship. These are all quotations. We wouldn't necessarily dis disagree with what is said. It's the emphasis. Thus we are plainly required to have Christian schools to teach every covenant child the word of God and to study every area of life and thought in terms of Christian presuppositions. Right on. It is also our duty to teach all nations, Matthew 28:19, and all the inhabitants thereof. The Great Commission is a commission to teach and to baptize. It has reference to education as well as to worship, to the establishment of schools as well as churches. Teaching is cited before baptizing. It is teaching which alone can create a godly civil government and a faithful church. Those of you who know the Great Commission know that that's flat wrong. Disciple the nations, baptizing them, teaching them is the order. But this man has forgotten that for a moment. Then he says, in conclusion, the primacy of teaching before church worship and national discipleship is asserted by Scripture. The great missionary requirement of the days ahead is Christian schools and institutions. Okay, now I said I didn't agree with that. Maybe it sounded right to you. It really should have, because we're all modern men and women. But there are some mistakes here both in the interpretation of the Bible and in the presuppositions which underlie this. Uh, these are things that the man who wrote this book knows but has forgotten for the moment when he wrote this particular section of his book. In the first place, it's not true that education and teaching came first at Mount Sinai. 
When God called people out of Egypt, it was so that they may go three days into the desert and celebrate a ritual of worship to him. As soon as they got out there, he instituted the law and instructed that certain people be put to death so that the Christian state was imposed, the Christian church and its liturgy were imposed, and the law was given, giving education. All of these things happened simultaneously. As soon as they got there, the rule was given, if a man so much as touches the mountain, he's to be put to death. And prepare yourselves, because in three days I'm giving the law, don't go near a woman. The ritual requirement. And they had all these sacrifices to perform. All of these came, things came together simultaneously with instruction. The establishment of a Christian state with the sword, the establishment of a Christian church with a worship pattern, and the establishment of a teaching function all came together. There was no priority in the order of things at Mount Sinai. Second, we would have to say as a general comment that it's not true that teaching comes before baptism. As I mentioned in Matthew 28:19, it says, Go therefore, disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I command you. It's not necessary to say that baptism comes before teaching because what we have there in Greek is not necessarily something that implies one comes before the other in time. But it certainly is clear that there's no priority the other way. It doesn't say teach and then baptize. Now, there are three basic problems with the way that the ideas here are set out. One is that we almost wind up with a messianic view of education uh, in this, which is very curious. I suppose so. Uh, secondly, and, and this man will not want to affirm a messianic view of education, I can assure you, but uh, nonetheless, it seems to creep in here. That's the most important thing of all. Secondly, we have a problem with reductionism. That is, all of society and all of the reform of society is going to come out of one thing, not out of several things, but one. Uh, we all have this tendency to ignore the doctrine of the Trinity and the fact that the three is equally ultimate with the one. When we look at a problem, we say, what is the one single key central focal point of this? And that is not the right way to think. That's kind of a Unitarian way to think. In almost any area of life, when we start reducing a problem down, we find that there are two or three things that the problem rests upon, or there are two or three things that society rests upon, and they can't be reduced to one another. You can't reduce the church to the state or the state to the church, and you certainly cannot reduce the reform of both of these to the Christian school. They're all interrelated, but if God is three in one, then these various spheres of life are equally ultimate. Sometimes we say, and I've said things like this, that reformation is going to have to come from the bottom up. You've got to get a whole lot of people converted, and then they will uh, call upon the state and force the state to be reformed, and they will call upon the church leaders and force the church to be reformed. Other people are going to say, no, God's way is to reform from the top down. First you get the special officers changed, and then they change the institutions under them. Well, in the first place, bottom up and top down are analogies they're figures of speech because you can go out and look at society and you don't find tops and bottoms, ups and downs. That's geometry, not society. So we're talking about an analogy and a figure of speech to start with, and it's very dangerous to start reasoning from a figure of speech. But I'm going to say, and I'll say this as a dogma, that when God reforms society, he does it both from the top down and from the bottom up. 
At the same time God begins to change people at the top, he begins to change them at the bottom. When God raises up men to teach the truth, he also changes the hearts of those who hear so that these things go together. And when God changes the hearts of people so they want to hear the truth, you can rest assured that he will raise up teachers who will teach it. And so these things always go together. And we shouldn't try to reduce God's holistic motion in history down to one type of causality. And we'll talk about causality in a minute. I have also said in times past, God reformed society from the inside out. First we reformed the heart, and then the whole man is reformed, and then the family around him is reformed, and then his neighborhood and society. It always goes from the inside out. That's the order of regeneration. But then other people will say, no, God always reforms from the outside in. He changes, he brings in his law, and it comes and it impacts upon people and all of society, and God works from the outside in. Again, this is just an analogy and a figure of speech. We don't need to take a choice here. God holistically moves in all of these areas at once. Basically, with some give and take, reformation is simultaneous in all areas of life. You will find that the state, the school, the family, the arts, the business enterprise, the individual, the church, all of these things begin to shape up. One may shape up a little bit more than another one at a certain time and vice versa. But when God moves, he moves all at once. And whatever is going on, it's all going at once in a certain direction. That's true in decline as well. Some of us have been have read Francis Schaeffer, and Francis Schaeffer will say things like that, first of all, the artist sees the direction society is going, and he, the great genius, makes a great leap forward into a future worldview. Then following behind him, the philosophers reason it out. And Immanuel Kant writes a book which no one can read, except other, a few other philosophers, and gradually these ideas percolate down over two or three hundred years until finally the man in the street is talking these same basic ideas. So first it starts with the intellectuals, the great genius who leaps into the future, then the philosophers who work into the future, and then percolating down to the riffraff. That's oh, you guys. <laughs> And then finally, last but not least, it percolates back up to the, the dumbest people in society, which is the clergy. At least that's tended to be the case in recent times. Uh, not present company accepted, obviously, but uh, when you look at liberal clergy, you tend to think that they have definitely scraped the bottom of the barrel when they enlisted uh, uh, people for liberal churches. Well, that's not true. At the same time Immanuel Kant was writing the Critique of Pure Reason, people in France were acting out his ideas on the street. They didn't get them from Kant, but Kant moved into the future at an intellectual level at the same time that people at a non-intellectual level were moving into the same future. Kant was building on the past, and these people were building on the past. Kant expressed himself in a certain language, the language of philosophies, which is hardly worth learning. Uh, the artists at the time expressed themselves in another foreign language, the language of painting or music. The people on the street expressed themselves in another language, the language of riots. But all these different languages were giving expression to the same idea simultaneously, and it's not true that intellectuals come up with ideas and they percolate down. Rather, what society as a whole is doing, the intellectual expresses in intellectualese, and the artist expresses in artese, and the people express in their normal language. You see, it's all at once. 
And so let's don't talk about reforming society from the top down or the bottom up or the outside in or the inside out of the church first or the state first or the school first. All these things go together. We, we need reform from the bottom down and from the top up. From the bottom up and the top whatever. I think the basic problem, however, with what is said here is that it betrays a philosophy known as the primacy of the intellect. And the primacy of the intellect, I maintain, is a reflex of modern worldview which is called atomistic empiricism. Now, we will talk more about that, and I don't like to throw that out, but we will start there, okay? We have to start somewhere, and I will set it out here, and then we'll move up to explaining what I mean by that. Education in the Bible is not simply a matter of information being transmitted uh, like one billiard ball striking, up, striking another billiard ball from one mind to another and then here and then there. That's one way in which education takes place, but it's not the only way. Let's talk about the pedagogy of the sword. I think we all know that communicating information through teaching, preaching, and reading is one way in which education takes place. That's one pedagogy. Pedagogy means edu education. But let's look at the educational effect of the sword the pedagogy of the sword. And here we're talking about fear. And what does fear do? Well, fear very definitely shapes the mind and attitudes of people who are under the discipline of fear. The fact is that if society is organized in such a way and the state is punishing this over here and letting this go and you grow up in that environment, your whole mind and attitude is shaped by that. That's a very strong pedagogical force. It's very educational. It's indirect when you consider it in terms of the mind, but it is no less powerful in shaping the way people act and think. It's very powerful pedagogically. In fact, we could say that uh, if you want to reform society, then one of the things you want to do is take over and change the things that are punished. Now let's just take a common example. You have a three-year-old child, or maybe you don't, and you don't know anything about this. I recall hearing someone who didn't have children, and of course uh, I could easily have said something like this a few years back, saying that he would never just whip his child for running in the street. He wouldn't say, now, John, you must never run in the street, and if you run in the street, I'll whip you. I'll whip you so hard you won't be able to sit down for a week, so don't run in the street. And so about an hour later, John's out by the curb, and so what do you do? Well, you take him in, and you remove a couple of outside layers of the epidermis. Why? Because you don't want him running in the street. Now, uh, of course, people who haven't had children yet tend to think that they don't want to do this. No, what they're going to do is they're going to sit down with John and say, Now, John, I want you to understand something here. Uh, that's a street, and there are all these cars out here. Cars are big and heavy, and cars don't see little teeny-weeny kids on the street, so you might get hit by a car. Now, rationally, I want you to think this through, John. If you got hit by this car, you'd be dead. Now, you maybe you don't know what death is, John, but death means a cessation of life. <laughs> now, I don't think little kids at that age have any real awareness of death, of the threat of death. You have to kind of teach that to them by spanking them, which is kind of similar to death, but not quite. Uh, but that's my view now that I have little kids. Uh, before, maybe I would have said, no, you need to understand this, meditate on it, contemplate it, and then you'll come to understand that you shouldn't go in the street. And, of course, if you do, I'll spank you. But let's just have a creative alternative here. Instead of going in the street, John, why don't you play in the backyard? 
So there's our modern approach. That's the nice approach to child rearing. Always provide a suggested alternative. Never say no. No, we don't want to have any external confrontations. But as a matter of fact, I recall several years ago babysitting uh, for some people who went out of town. They had small children. These children were very well-behaved, very nice kids. They did what you asked them to do. They said they never spanked their kids. They always provided uh, alternatives if the kids wanted to do something they shouldn't do, but they never confronted them about anything. And they got, by bargaining with their kids that way, they got pretty good behavior out of them when they were little. What these people didn't understand is that when their kids get to be teenagers, they will have no inner restraints developed in them because they will never have learned to handle frustration and confrontation. And when they get to be teenagers, they'll just kind of do what they want to do. And they may not like the creative alternative of not getting the girlfriend pregnant or whatever. You see, the importance of having confrontations and being severe with children and even storming at them as God stormed at Israel at Mount Sinai is so that they learn to handle frustration and develop inner restraints. And that external discipline works the inner restraints in. Now, you get criticized sometimes for doing that. People think you're too severe or this, that, and the other. But try to keep that in mind. Now, I'm not here to talk about child rearing, but to use it as an example. External, the confrontations and force, they don't have the effect of drawing, rebe they do draw rebellion out of the child, by the way. If, if you're dealing severely with your children, they will tend to, they will make them frustrated and you'll tend to get this. But then you can deal with it and they learn how to deal with rebellion because it's being brought out and you're dealing with it. You never get rid of it, but the child learns how to handle it, and he learns, he develops inner restraints from these confrontations. Now, you see, that's pedagogically very important. It shapes and molds the child's character, and it shapes and molds him in a certain direction. And the same thing's true of the civil government, which wields the sword. It wields the sword to punish X and to reward or to leave alone Y. And that in doing so, the civil government shapes and molds society in a certain direction. That's why when we take over, we will punish the things the Bible says to punish and leave alone the things the Bible says to leave alone, and that will educate and shape society in a certain way in a direction. And that is very important. That's not secondary to instruction from the mouth to mouth. It goes along with it and provides the context in which instruction makes sense. Education, then, is not simply the communication of data from mind to mind. Biblical education does not consist of a notebook full of neat sermon outlines. Education also includes the threat of the sword. And so if you want to educate society, you need to take over the government. And whether people like it or not, impose a biblical civil order. Now, whether we can do that today or not, I don't think we can. And so there's a sense in which a lot of people do have to be converted first. But in principle... We don't see God instructing Mount, people at Mount Sinai for two years until they learned everything and then saying, okay, now I'm going to institute a civil government. It didn't happen. It happened all at once. Now, just to drop back a little bit, let's talk about how we conceive of education in the modern world. I said that the modern world is characterized by a philosophy known as atomistic empiricism. That's what secular humanism or the modern scientific worldview is. The modern view of causality or cause and effect is that one thing causes another thing. And the analogy is like you're playing pool. You take a stick, 
I don't know how to do this right. And you know, the, hit, the stick hits a white ball, always a white ball. And the white ball rolls and it hits, hopefully not the black ball, but one of the other balls, and they move, they hit each other. And that's what cause and effect is. It's one thing striking another. And then this chain of causes moves down. Now that is an atomistic worldview. There are two other pagan worldviews, idealism, which has a different kind of causality, and teleologism, which has a different view of causality. And these are not very much taken into consideration in the modern scientific worldview. The result is that what's left of idealism and what's left of teleologism as a worldview is called occultism, and the, the genuinely valid insights that come from these sources are bound up in occultist systems. And so we tend to reject them even worse than we reject the secular humanist worldview and not to know what to do with it. Well, later on we're going to have a lecture on the fact that uh, Cain got there first, built the first city, developed the first science, and how Christians have to deal with the fact that the pagans tend to get there first. But for this morning, I want you to see that our view of education is almost exclusively in terms of this modern view information going from one person to another, and we don't deal with what we might call a field view of education, which is that we set up an environment and we structure it in a certain way, and that very environment and structuring is highly educational in its impact. Highly educational. We could call that a field view as opposed to a particle or atomistic view of education. And that's what church discipline is about. We create a community which polices itself for the most part, and in emergency is policed by the elders. And there's a certain amount of fear in there and that you don't want to have charges brought against you before the elders, and you don't want to get caught doing this, that, or the other. And that structure is highly educational in its impact. It may not be, we may not be able rationalistically and intellectually to formulate exactly what's going on, but it's definitely going on. And so the erection of that environment is a form of education, equally ultimate with the education of communicating information from one person to another, which is to say that discipline in the church and then also in the state is uh, as important as preaching in the church. That's not to pull preaching down, but to say that preaching needs this context for it to work at all. Otherwise, uh, there are a lot of Bible churches around today where there is no discipline and there is no liturgy. People go and they listen to sermons and they take notes. And it doesn't make any difference. I mean, they have a head full of facts and no changed life, really, and nothing else. Preaching, these, this context for preaching is necessary, and that's the discipline or structured environment that goes along with it. And that's important pedagogically in shaping and training and changing people. So... That is the state. Now, this man also said that before you can have worship, you have to have education. You have to have what he calls education, that is, instruction, mind to mind. I don't believe that's true. Why don't we look, for instance, at Luke 22 and see something that Jesus did that he would never have done if he was a Presbyterian. That is, if he'd held to this modern primacy of the intellect worldview. In Luke 22, 19 and 20, 
In the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Excuse me. Starting in 19. Having taken some bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This blood is poured out for you, which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, a more accurate translation would be, do this as a memorial to me. It's not simply that we do it as a, an aid to devotion, but it's that just like in the Old Testament, you had these memorial pillars set up by the Jordan River, and they were there whether anybody saw them or not, and God set them up to be looked at. So the Lord's Supper is something God sets up, not something that we set up, and it's here, there's a thereness and a thatness to it, whether anybody appreciates it or not. And it works one way or the other, either to bring a curse or to bring a blessing. It always works. It is never neutral. And so it's not merely remembering that's being said here, but do this as a memorial to me. It summarizes all the memorials of the Old Testament, and we will look at that later on. What I want you to see is it doesn't say understand this, contemplate this, preach this. It says do this. Now, let's also look at... I'll read to you 1 Corinthians 11, 24 to 26. We all have this memorized anyway. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in a memorial to me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, what's interesting about all this, and liturgists have pointed it out through the centuries, is that there is no real explanation as to what this means. This is my body. This is my blood. Wars have been fought over what this means. The church has been splintered over what this means. You all know that the standard quarterly sermon on communion in your standard quarterly communion church is, first of all, there's the Roman view, which is called transubstantiation, blah, blah, blah. And then there's a Lutheran view, and then there's a Zwinglian view. And you sort of let everybody know that there are all these views so they can discern the body rightly under the assumption that discerning the body means understanding all the details of what's going on. Well, Jesus didn't do it. Now, I, I'm sure that if Jesus had been a modern man, a Presbyterian, holding to the primacy of the intellect, he would have given a whole long sermon explaining it, exactly all the ins and outs of this and then told him to do it. Because you can't do it unless you understand it, right? But that isn't what happened. He said, do this. The first and foremost thing involved is the doing of it. Obviously, we should study it, contemplate it, preach on it. As the church matures over history, our understanding of the ritual will increase. But what is said first and foremost is to do this. The performance of the ritual is put first. Now, why? Because the performance of this ritual structures our whole persons. The same way that a disciplined environment structures our pers persons, going through certain motions structures our whole persons. And the communication of information can only properly be done in an environment which has been so structured. One of the main reasons why the church today understands so little of the Bible is that the church has not been structured by proper ritual. Now, again, with our modern view of education, mind-to-mind, billiard-ball causality, information-striking information, then that's not really important. We just 
inform people and educate them, and then they learn it and understand it, and then somehow that is going to influence them. Well, it's true that that does have some influence on people. I don't wish to negate that. But that's not at all the whole biblical view of education. The performance of this ritual establishes a context in which this intellectual information makes a whole lot more sense. One of the things that interests me as a theologian is in recent years there's been a whole recovery of what's called biblical theology. And biblical theology is the study of overarching patterns and symbols in the Bible. That's not exactly what a professional would say, but I'm not speaking so much as a professional right now. Systematic theology deals with certain areas of conflict in the church. For those of you who wish to know, systematic theology would be better named polemic theology because it always deals with areas of controversy. And it does so by systematizing the truth, translating it into a certain kind of a vocabulary, which we might say is Pauline-type vocabulary, and applying it to certain problems that have arisen in the church. But biblical theology and uh, uses as a method trying to look at large symbolic structures in the Bible and how these are used in the Bible to shape and form the thinking of people. Symbolic structures which are alien to us because we've not grown up hearing about them. The reason they're alien to us is because for the last several hundred years there's been no emphasis on liturgy. One of the things that interested me is when I got back into reading some of the older literature on the Lord's Supper, I found that it was full of biblical theology. They would go back and talk about the various sacrifices and what they meant then and how they're different in the New Covenant and yet there's some similarities and that we eat the food. And then they would talk about various other symbolic structures, all of which come into baptism and the Lord's Supper. The reason that there hasn't been much of this biblical theology in, in recent years is because there hasn't been any sacramental theology. And part of that is that there hasn't been any emphasis on the structuring force of liturgy. The performance of ritual structures our whole persons and creates a context for understanding truth when preached. Now, if we have a very minimal liturgy, what we might call a bare-bones liturgy, then that provides a fairly minimal context for understanding. The bottom line is if you're in a prison camp or you're out in the woods and you can't do anything else, there is an absolute minimum that must be done. That is, break the bread and pass the cup. Do this in, in remembrance of me. But when we have the opportunity to do so, there is no reason why we shouldn't take biblical patterns as a whole starting with the sin offering, confessing sin, moving as in the biblical pattern to the whole burnt offering, consecrating ourselves as we do in the offering, and then going to the peace offering, which is communion with God. That was the order in the Old Testament. That was the order that was being violated by the church of Corinth in that they ate the peace offering before they confessed their sins. Those kinds of orders and patterns are found in the Bible, and we pattern our ritual after it. Similarly, an erroneous liturgy can sidetrack our understanding. If we do things in an improper order or if we do, don't do things the way the Bible says to, it will set our minds and our thinking a certain way and that will run interference with the truth. So it's important to have things done in a proper biblical order and that's why it's important to study the Bible and what it says about the order. 
For instance, you'll notice that we're not using the doxology in the offertory anymore. Now, that's not that the doxology is, it would be wicked to use the doxology there, but the doxology is not a hymn of self-sacrifice. It's a hymn of praise. The offertory in the service is the time where we offer ourselves to God, having confessed our sins on the basis of the sin offering, then we bring ourselves and our gifts to God. And that's why historically it's been most appropriate, been believed most appropriate, to sing something like, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. That is what the burnt offering is all about. And that's what we do, that is the act which is done at that point in the service. We give ourselves and our gifts, which is a whole burnt sacrifice and a meal or cereal sacrifice. That's what the gifts are. And these things are laid before God on the table uh, for his inspection as a heave offering or as a wave offering. They're held up to God uh, and given to him. Now, see, it, liturgically it makes more sense then to sing a song about self-sacrifice or giving ourselves to God. Romans 12, uh, giving our... Well, let's just read it. Just occurs to me in Romans 12, verse 1, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So, this act of sacrificing ourselves in the offertory is important. It's not unimportant. And so, to highlight that, we sing something that deals with the sacrifice of ourselves and not something which, while it may be traditional, um, and even traditionally put there, doesn't really focus in on that. There are other places in the service where the doxology can be used, and I'm sure that in the future we'll put it back in at some place or other. All right. So we've seen that it's important that we try to fill out our liturgy the way the Bible would indicate to do it and not simply have an absolute minimum. There's nothing in the Bible that indicates that there's any that there is any virtue in having an absolutely minimum type liturgy, although there's been a stoic influence in the church which has said that. And uh, it's important that we try to get our liturgy to conform to biblical patterns so that we learn to think the right way about it. And this is also very important for education. Now, where we've come in critiquing the article that we started out with is that all three aspects of education are equally important. We can't reform our civilization by setting up schools alone and getting people's heads filled with facts and principles by itself that's important but it's not the only thing and it doesn't necessarily come first the structure and discipline of the church as a community is all important as an educational device and the structure and discipline of the sequence in time of a liturgy and I would also say of some observance of a church year it's helpful here at least is important in structuring our lives. is very educationally important. And all three of these things go together. There's no need to make one primary over the other. If we worship a God who's three in one, then we shouldn't expect one thing necessarily to be primary over the other. In conclusion, there are basically three ways to look at the world. We can look at the world in terms of all the individual things that are in the world. This is what we call in modern Christian philosophy, a particle view of the world. There are all these individual objects, and they relate to one another 
through causality. One thing causes another. I hit you in the face, you fall down. And you stand up, you hit me in the face, and I fall down. Okay? Cause and effect. Billiard ball causality. Very true, but not the only truth. Then, secondly, we can look at the world as a series of environments, what we call a field view. And these are environments where there are influences all across the board. And our church is one of those. We have a community. We get together. Somebody gets way out of line. He knows that people will disapprove of that. Uh, There are certain tendencies in the community. There is a discipline. And that is a field view of world. And then there's what we call a wave view of looking at the world. And that is viewing things how they change in time. How one thing comes in and another thing goes out. How secular humanism comes in and rises and grows and develops and sticks its octopus tentacles into every area of life and starts to suck the blood out of Christianity. And then how the Christian faith rises and develops. And all these things move and change in time. Now, our pedagogy needs to include all three of those. It needs to include, obviously, the particle approach. Primarily, that means preaching, teaching, and instruction. Reading books, listening to tapes, hearing preaching, hearing the Word of God. Truth to the mind, to the will, and to the emotions. Truth communicated from one particle to another. But we also need in our pedagogy this field aspect, which is church discipline, the structuring of the environment. That's where truth is put into action. It's where it makes sense. Without that structure, the educational or communication aspect doesn't work very well. And third, we need this wave aspect in the church, which is the sequence of the liturgy. We come in, we start off confessing our sins, we praise God, we offer ourselves as a sacrifice, we remember his sacrifice, we eat the sacrificial lamb, we rejoice when we go home. That sequence of events, that wave, that acting out, experiencing of the truth is very important. It doesn't change anything in the world in the sense that in the Roman Catholic Church one re-sacrifices Christ or in the Eastern Church one keeps the world from falling apart by doing this, but it instructs us. It's for our instruction that we do this. And so the sequence of things in time is part of our instruction. The arrangement of things in society around us is part of our instruction and its discipline, and the communication of information is part of our instruction. All three of these things belong together. All three are equally important. And that's why in our church, even though it's not, it hasn't been part of the tradition in recent years, following Van Til, we break with this exclusively atomistic modern view which says everything consists of a causality which is particle or atomistic in nature and says that preaching is the primary thing and everything else is secondary. And we say, no, we want to emphasize all three. We want to emphasize the church government, as we've done in these classes in the last several weeks. We want to emphasize the liturgy and what we do in time. And we want to emphasize the preaching and teaching, which, of course, we do all the time, like I've been doing for the last hour. So... We have about one minute for questions if anybody has something they'd like to ask. We will talk more about these three basic views of the world in future classes, so if that was a bit mysterious, hopefully it'll be a little bit less mysterious in the future. Uh, I, I was thinking when you were talking about the, uh, the Lord's Supper and the tendency to always want to explain some things. Uh, I, 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 would, I would agree with that in, in general. Uh, in, in principle, I, I think there is a consideration, though, that that there 
way of thinking was was a lot. They they had an understanding that they didn't have to understand that. Uh, they they were not they they were they were not as steeped in the in the they did not think as much like Plato as most people did and and maybe uh, people do need a little bit of instruction to stop thinking like Plato. Oh, I I didn't mean to contradict that. I just said these things all go together, and it it is important to notice that there is something that's commanded to be done. Um, what, what I, where we will go from that is it's not neutral what we do. And the performance of liturgy is a series of acts which are done or performed. Um, we'll talk about this probably next time we talk about language, but they're called performative acts. And uh, But no, there's that the information, the instruction about the sacrament goes with it from the beginning, and yet when it's inaugurated right there, it's simply inaugurated. And, of course, they had the Old Testament background and their mind was informed and they understood it. We need to fill that in. But our doctrine of infant baptism tells us that we start off in the ritual and then the information is plugged in. We don't have to have the information first and then move into the ritual. These things always go together. I think that answers what you're getting at, too. Quick. I was reading Ryle last night on the subject of the Lord's Supper. And... Uh, he made a very strong case for the teaching aspect of the sacrament itself, speaking of the Lord's Supper, that even a very simple man is brought face-to-face with actually looking death right at it. I know my little kid did not understand. Peter did not understand at all. I told him he would die if he was hit by a car, but he began to get the picture pretty clearly when I showed him a flattened squirrel in front of him. And by forcing a person to look at the memorial, uh, the teaching is there. It's inseparable. You don't. Right. Re, you never really start with pure ritual, and then move from there to instruction. Right. It has the seeds of instruction in it. Even a very simple person can understand it. Yeah. It begins, as you say, with the ritual itself. The commandment is not to understand. The commandment is to do. Yeah. First and foremost, the commandment at that point is to do. It does show forth the Lord's death, and that's why we say it's a visible word. And we'll talk more about that too. The word comes to us in two forms: the Bible and the sacraments. And we have to talk about how these are distinguished, try to understand them some. But I think that the church will go all the way through church history and on the last day will not understand fully the sacrament. And so one approaches understanding it, but the bottom line is to do it. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.